From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Well, a tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, we would love to have you. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Grab one of these open phone lines if you're outside the United States and Canada. We would love to hear from you as well. That number is one 205 2712985 and if you are outside of North America we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 12052712985 or you can always send us an email openline at ewtn.com that's openline all one word at ewtn.com I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson, magnificent person, handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Thursday, Dominican Father Brian Mullady. How are you? It's fine, thank you. You know, Father, I'm a convert to the Church, coming up on a couple of decades now since I uh, converted to the Catholic faith, and um, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes I'm I'm grateful almost that that I was a convert because I fear that had I been born into the faith, there are aspects that maybe I wouldn't appreciate to the degree that I do. Uh, you know, being an adult convert, and one of the things that I've appreciated from day one is the liturgical calendar. And uh, whether it's the, the Roman calendar that, that most of us are, are following, or as I've become even more uh, familiar with the traditional Latin calendar from days gone by, um, they both have wonderful things to offer us. And uh, coming out of this Easter season with the great Feast of Pentecost last week, um, you don't even have time to catch your breath before there's another just absolutely magnificent feast coming up this Sunday, huh? Right. Well, I've talked about the Trinity before. This is going to be the Feast of the Most Holy Trinity on Sunday. But it's such an important topic. It's such a beautiful and deep topic that I think it really needs to be, you can always talk about it. Um, first of all, as you know, it sort of summarizes the church year up to this point. Because we have the Father, and then we have the Jesus born, and then we have his life, and then we have his death and resurrection, and then we have the Holy Spirit. So the persons of the Trinity, which admittedly it took many centuries to iron out, as to what we actually taught about them, are extremely important. They haven't always been thought that way, though, and some of the popular notions of Christianity tend to downplay them. Uh, the English author Dorothy Sayers, who was an Anglican, the first woman, I believe, to graduate from Oxford in medieval studies, was very um, impressed, you know, in a negative way, 
by the lack of faith in England, especially among Anglican uh, young people, during the 1930s. And she wrote um, some plays based on the Gospels. Father Fezio's published some of them today, reprinted them. And in these plays, she holds out for a very strong and powerful Christology. So some of the students or some of the young people who read these said, well, where did you get those beautiful ideas about Christ? We've never heard them before. And she said, well, you'll find them in the Council of Chalcedon, in the Council of Nicaea, in the Council of Ephesus. She said, the trouble is your priests think all you want to hear about is social justice, and they don't teach doctrine anymore. You know, I was reading Father Murray's book recently about how to deal with our present crisis, and he emphasized doctrine. So the primary doctrine, of course, is the Holy Trinity. How do we proclaim one God, and you have to say there are three equal persons who are also equally God, but that's what we teach. And so when Dorothy Sayers was reflecting on this, she made up a test. She wrote an article called The Dogma is the Drama. And she made up a fanciful test, not by what we actually teach, but by, by what people probably think we teach today who aren't educated in their faith. And so one of the questions was, what is the Holy Trinity? And the answer was, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the whole thing incomprehensible, something made up by theologians to make it hard, nothing to do with daily life and ethics. Well, this is absolute nonsense. The Holy Trinity is the center not only of truth, but of our religion. Now, it's true. We can't ever completely understand God. That's beyond us completely. But he's obviously revealed lots of things about himself for us to understand. And, of course, in Christ, we have the constantly him discussing his relationship with his Father and with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Trinity is central to our faith. And not only that, but it's the model of what society should be like. Because you have three equal persons, equal in dignity. Remember, the only difference between them is their relationship of origin. So the Father has no origin. The Son has his origin in the Father. That's why he's called the Son. And the Holy Spirit, what we say in the Latin Church, proceeds from the Father and the Son. Uh, also a correct form in the Eastern Church, he proceeds from the Father through the Son or with the Son. The Holy Spirit is the sign of their love for each other. And so you have all these persons who spend nothing in eternity but continually giving and receiving in total truth and total freedom without any competition, without any jealousy, without any um, utilitarianism, being, you know, reducing the other person to an object of use. Well, what's that but a sign of what our society should be like? That's the primary society. Just as God's fatherhood is the primary fatherhood. And that means that family life and the church and especially are the more central societies, like in the state even, should reflect the way the persons in the Trinity carry on their existence. When we introduce manipulation, domination, competition for power, which is what people are out all about today, we falsify our social, what true society really is. I saw a cartoon in the Los Angeles Times about 20 years ago and it said, I compete, 
therefore I am. I manipulate, therefore I am. I don't listen, therefore I am. I am, therefore you're not. So this is the denial of what true society is about. And hell is not a society, remember, as such. It's a disorder of society. It's a kingdom of noise and dis, where Satan basically spends his life trying to justify his own rebellion by the stronger self absorbing the weaker into him by his domination of will. Some people would like to look on political society or family society or the church that way today. That's not the way society is. God's society teaches us what society is supposed to be like. And that society is always involved in the common good. It's always involved in, uh, well, listening, not manipulating, not competing, but instead giving yourself to the good of others. That's what it exists for. So it's a union of knowledge and love in total freedom. If we want to look, therefore, to a model and to a cure for the ills that we're having in our present society, the primary example should be the Society of the Holy Trinity, which all real human societies, like for example the Holy Family, they all reflect. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, and it's your ticket to the program. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. And if you're outside the United States and Canada, we've also got a number for you to use. That number is one 205 2712985 and if you are outside of the United States and Canada we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 12052712985 and you can always send us an email that email address is openline at ewtn.com that's openline all one word at ewtn.com and put Father Brian or Thursday or something to that effect in the subject line, and we'll get it to the appropriate location. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Dominican Father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. We've got a lovely item from EWTN's religious catalog, the Guardian Angel Crib Medal with a white ribbon. This large, beautifully detailed pewter medal features the popular image of a guardian angel keeping watch over his charge, crossing a dangerous bridge. The round medal is two and a half inches in diameter and comes with a white satin ribbon. The back is smooth and can be personalized by an engraver, and it's made right here in the United States. 
It's available now at EWTNRC.com. They're offering free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. That's standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. Beautiful Guardian Angel Crib Metal with a white ribbon uh, available at EWTN's religious catalog. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833 288 3986. First up today is Aaron, a first time caller in Hastings, Michigan, watching us today on YouTube. Aaron, you are on with Father Brian. Hi, Father. Um, thanks for taking my call. Um, I have a good news translation, Catholic edition. Um, but I was actually wondering is that a reliable translation or should I be looking for a different one? I didn't hear the first word. What was the first word? A what translation? Um, it's a good good news translation, Catholic edition. Oh, good news. Oh, yeah. No, I wouldn't think that's really reliable. The, the best translation of the scripture, although it is the Catholic edition of the Revised Standard Version, um, which is was originally a Protestant translation. And unfortunately, the Old Testament in the 60s, they, they kept the King James sort of English, not the New Testament so much. But the Revised Standard is the one that was always recommended to us. And there is a Catholic edition because, of course, it includes the books, but the Protestants consigned the Apocrypha. But, um, and then the Douay, of course, version is a strictly Catholic version. Um, but it's suffered from the fact, which is a good thing sometimes and a bad thing, that it was more a translation of Latin uh, scriptures which was a tra itself a translation <laughs> than the, the Greek and Hebrew. But uh, the Revised Standard, is, uh, as far as the modern scripture scholarship is concerned, in the Catholic edition is considered to be the best. You know, Father, I think sometimes in, in these more... In an attempt to to have a more modern vernacular translation with things like the good news, there have been several uh, attempts at doing that, right. but it really loses something in the process, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it loses its revelatory character. Although, <laughs> you know, I have a my my grandmother was a Methodist, and she read the King James version every day of her life. Well, in the early '60s, I bought this thing called the New English Bible. And it was a, an attempt to transliterate the Bible in modern, you know, parlance. So when I went away, I left it in my room, and she took my room when I went to the novitiate. And when I came home, she said to me, you know, I really want to thank you for leaving that Bible in my room. She said, I've been reading the Bible every day of my life and didn't have a blessed idea what it was about. <laughs> and this one I can understand, because she had an eighth grade education, you know. But uh, she she appreciated it, even though it was it's, it's not not a thing a scholar would use. Um, yeah. But I mean, it can be very helpful. But just remember, revelation is reserved really to the original languages, and whatever is considered to be um, a proper translation of them by the church, the fact that it's inspired scripture. Does that help you, Aaron? Yes, it does. Um, right. But I am also in a really tight spot financially. Mm -hmm. um, is is there a oh, way they're that, they're Yeah, are you online? That, yes. If you go to BibleGateway.com, you can find the entire text of the Scripture in that Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition uh, for you to, to ponder. 
Right, and it, and it's, I'm sure it's available in paperback too, because I have, believe me or not, believe it or not, I have a paperback copy from 1968 that's well taped, because <laughs> <laughs> I used it in my studies. Yeah. yeah. God bless you, Aaron. We appreciate that phone call today. That frees up a line for you at eight three three two eight eight E W T N. That's eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Um. You know, Father, I had an occasion when the most recent uh, translation of the missile was done. Yes. Uh, well, about, about 10 years ago now, I guess. Or, or yes, more. it's been a while. It's been yes. a while now. And, uh, and, and some people were not happy with what they perceived to be the, the formal nature of it and, and things like that. And and it's and that was attributed largely to the fact that they were trying to be a little more faithful and a little more literal with the translation of the Latin, especially in the New Testament right. from the Vulgate. And I had someone point out something that I hadn't really considered before, uh, and it was somebody who was working on a committee uh, that was working on this translation, which they had yes. you know done for many I years. Saw. Yeah, and he said that uh, that one of the big considerations was that many developing countries are completely devoid of ancient language scholars. And they relied on the uh, the accuracy of English translations to translate things into their own languages. Mm. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, that was a huge war. But you'll notice people hardly talk about it anymore. Uh, I, I, I used to give lectures to try to encourage people to accept that translation, and I even had to do it with priests, um, which I found really weird. Uh, I remember we had a young <laughs> priest who I was living with, and um, uh, he did know something about Latin. And I said, you know, if you compare this with the Latin text, and then when they came out with the translation, he compared the two, the old and the present one. I said, you wouldn't even know you were living in the same religion. <laughs> and he said, you're right, you're right. Yeah, uh, I was. I remember I asked the Benedictine nun who was on that ISIL commission one time. I said, "Sister, can you explain something to me?" She was English, and I said, "How can you explain the fact that Thomas Cranmer, albeit with the Catholic elements basically reduced greatly, could come out with an English translation of the Latin Missal that rivals Shakespeare, Milton, in two years?" And it's taken us 50 years to try to produce a reliable <laughs> translation of a Latin text. And she said, well, well, first of all, we don't have Kramer's gifts, you know. And, and secondly, he did not have to deal with committees. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it. Yes. There's a lot to be said right there. Right. Our number, right. yeah, our number here is 833-288-EWTN. We've got wide open phone lines for you. A great opportunity to ask your question of Father Brian Milady. 833-288-3986. Frank sent us an email, and he wants to know, is it true that the original church taught universal salvation and the doctrine of hell was invented in the early Middle Ages? Oh, no, that's not true. Not at all. Um, I'd have to do some research on it to say when specifically the doctrine was enunciated and how. But as you know, Jesus himself refers to the gates of hell. Uh, I build my church of the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And also he, in the uh, Matthew 25, 
you have the just who were sent off to, you know, paradise, and you have the wicked who were sent off to suffering in hell. And then you have the famous Dives and Lazarus with, you know, the rich man who's in hell, basically, and the poor man who's in heaven. And the, uh, from hell, the uh, rich man asks, uh, you know, Abraham to let him go and evangelize his brothers. And Abraham says, because uh, Christ hasn't risen from the dead yet, he says, well, they have Moses and the prophets. If they won't listen to them, even very graphically, he says, they won't even listen to someone who rises from the dead. So, I'm sorry, the doctrine of hell, Sheol, um, in, in both regarding limbo and regarding the hell, which is eternal, are things that are uh, common teachings in the Old and New Testament. Well, and didn't St. Paul himself in the very first century talk really more about falling short than he did about salvation, huh? Well, I guess. Um, but St. Paul taught a lot of things, you know. And um, I, I've always liked the more positive emphasis. But certainly hell's a possibility. And uh, so there are some people who say there aren't any people in hell. Well... It's very true that we don't know if God has condemned any particular person to hell, but we certainly know there are people in hell, namely the demons, uh, before you even consider us. So the possibility is that we'd be there too. So hell needs to be discussed, and it needs to be emphasized what it actually is. And it's basically a place where human uh, nature and freedom eternally disagree because the whole reason we have freedom is that we can see God and that realizes our nature but we will never be able to see God and that by our own free choice and that eternal disagreement is the complete frustration of man's capacity for truth and therefore the soul and therefore it's the greatest evil you can have and uh, the damned uh, suffer suffer in that terribly. It's why, the, as I explained in just re in the question I answered just before, um, they suck the will and freedom out of others because they try to find in others what they can only find in God, um, and uh, they refuse to surrender themselves because their primary sin is pride. But hell is a very uh, sophisticated doctrine, and its full explanation, perhaps, took a while for the church to work out, as it did the nature of the Trinity and the sacraments and all those other things, too. But it's certainly commonly taught in the uh, new, Old and New Testaments. Yeah, very good. Thanks so much. We appreciate that email, Frank, uh, today on Open Line Thursday. George, in the great state of New York, hang on. You are next up. We're also going to talk to Susan in Melbourne, Florida, and we've got plenty of time for your calls as well. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States in uh, and uh, Canada, you can uh, reach us by calling 1-205-271-2985, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 
800-271-2985. And if you'd like, you can always send us an email like Frank did. That address for uh, uh, our email is openline, all one word, openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. Dominican father Brian Milady is in the house for a Thursday edition of EWTN's Open Line. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. You know, there's a lot of great names for cities and towns in our country, and one of the greatest is Schenectady, New York. That's where George is. He is uh, listening on Pox at Bonham Radio. George, welcome to the program. You're on with Father Brian. Thank you for the welcome. Uh, Hello, Father Brian. Hi. Uh, I'm calling just for a little uh, more explanation. I can't put into words... uh, First, I told the screener I was going to ask just about one word, but now I just thought about six other words. So it's basically two questions, but the same idea, just a kind of a better definition so I can tell someone else. Uh, the first one is, uh, I mean, I think I know the answer, but then I can't, it's something I heard in church a million, zillion times, but I, I really can't tell it to somebody else, so, and I can't tell it to myself. So the first word is consubstantiation, and the next set is through him, with him, and in him. And that's always my, that's my question. Uh, consubstantial, you mean in the sense of the creed? Or yes. Do you, yes, all right. Well, that's an interesting way that you should ask that, because usually when I give talks to priests about the new translation, one of them would say, how come we have to talk about this consubstantiation thing? Why can't we just say like we always did one in being with? And I said, well, that's because it's not specific enough. We're one in being with God, but we're hardly consubstantial with him. Consubstantial basically affirms that, uh, as we say in the creed, that the word is not a lesser creature, not a created being. He is true light from light, true God, altogether God. And uh, that's what it's basically affirming. We're one in being with God through grace, but we're hardly of the same substance as God. We differ as creature to creator, first of all. So that's the answer to that. I don't quite understand that through him and with him and in him means that Jesus is both God and man. And then we are offering the sacrifice in the canon of the Mass. Uh, We are finishing it by offering the consecrated gifts uh, through him because he is a man, with him, because he himself offered them as man, and in him, through him, with him, and in him. And uh, in him is uh, also our participation in this. So we're emphasizing the fact that uh, following the oblation of the sacrifice, where we give ourselves that in this particular action, there's only one um, bloody sacrifice that relates to the one sacrifice on the cross. And we are a part of that, participating in it by our participation in Mass. Is that helpful for you, George? 
Oh, yes. Very helpful. Thank you very much. Oh, you're sure. very welcome. We appreciate the phone call. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. Give us a call at 833-288-3986. Next up is Susan in Melbourne, Florida, listening on Divine Mercy Radio. Susan, you are on with Father Brian Milady. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, my question is... I was looking at this calendar that I got from the parish, and I'm flipping over the page from May to June, and I realize we've got Joan of Arc portrayed in all her glory on the page. And, of course, Joan of Arc is no longer on the calendar. She should be on May 30th, I think. So uh, what happened? Why is she not on the calendar? Well, she is on the calendar, However, she's not celebrated as a feast of the Universal Church. And part of the reason is because, you know, she basically was um, emphasizing the French people. Um, now, in the time before World War II, when she was canonized, that was very, very important for the Church to uh, uh, emphasize. But now that we have this, well, worldwide Church, very few saints are there just because they represent particular ethnic groups in Europe. And uh, also, St. Joan, of course, you know, is a feminist hero now. Uh, I live in Portland, Oregon, and they were ripping down statues, and the only statue they didn't rip down was Joan of Arc because it would have been anti-feminist. But she wasn't a feminist heroine. She was a, a, a very devout person who was used by God to help the French people in their struggle for their rights. Now, of course, that gets you involved in the whole business of the English versus the French and all that. I think she really transcended that in a certain way, even though she was sent to lead the armies of France to establish the legitimate monarchy. But uh, the visions and all that, they all have to do not so much with rebelling against the church, or George Bernard Shaw thought she was the first Protestant, where everything was personal interpretation. You remember that one of the reasons she is a saint is that she was tried by a local council of people politically motivated. And um, at a certain point in time, the Grand Inquisitor of France was at this trial, and he was a Dominican, a member of my order. His name was John of Paris. And a certain point in time, she stood up and appealed her case to the Pope. Well, the judges who were politically motivated by the English uh, refused to allow such an appeal. And when that occurred, John of Paris stood and said, this trial is null and void now, because every Christian soul has a right to appeal to the Pope. And you know, the Catechism quotes her as saying, when it comes to Christ and the Church, all I know is that they're one. She was hardly rebellious, rebellious against the Catholic Church. She was rebellious against, and we have lots of examples of this today, you know, politically motivated clerics and hierarchical people who weren't living our doctrine and were trying to use the Church merely for political means. And uh, that's also shown in the, the famous question she was asked, as a trap, this is in the Catechism too, um, are you in the state of grace? 
because no Christian can answer fully with absolute knowledge unless it's revealed to them by God that they're in the state of grace. So she answered, um, if she'd answered yes, they would have burned her as a heretic because she couldn't know that. And if she'd answered no, they would have burned her as a witch because that meant everything she did must have been by the power of the devil. And remember Joan of Arc, who was basically an unlettered peasant girl, never studied theology. All she said was, if I'm not, may God put me there, and if I am, may God keep me there. And this is the Catholic answer. I know her life is very romantic. I love St. Joan. Um, I love the movies, especially the one with Ingrid Bergman. But there have been many, many of them. We have to remember, though, that her primary character is a saint. Yeah. does have to do with her leading the armies of France against the it English. It gets lost, doesn't it? It gets lost in it, yes. This is a holy woman, yeah. Right, and also she wanted to establish the rightful monarch of her people, whom she took to be Charles, you know. And uh, she felt the English in the Hundred Years' War were um, in a, trying to intervene in a country that wasn't theirs, so it was a kind of unjust usurpation. Does that help, Susan? Yes, it certainly does. I know you don't like the answer, but at least it sheds a little light on things, huh? Yes, it, it does help. Uh, may I ask another question? Absolutely. Sure. Um, on the same calendar, I look at October, and for St. Teresa of Avila, it says St. Teresa of Jesus, and for St. Teresa... Of Lisieux, it says Saint Teresa of the Child Jesus. Now these right. calendars are put out for us parishioners. Right. Why don't they use the names that we know them by instead of the the technically most correct names? Well, I don't know. Wouldn't you want to have your technically correct name used for you? I would. <laughs> You know my religious name. I, if that's my well, religious, aren't, aren't name. some of those some of those saints have multiple feasts, and some of them are associated with particular names, aren't they? Well, Saint, Saint Teresa of Jesus was her religious name. That was her title of Jesus, and the same was true of the of the child Jesus. And also, she added and the holy face. So, if you want to get Saint Therese correct, you got to get of the child Jesus and the holy face, totally. But, um, no, those were their titles, and they're a part of their names in Carmel. So the most proper way to do that is to show that. And, again, I think it's a teaching moment. Uh, the fact that religious have special names, or they change their names in convents or monasteries, and the fact that some orders add titles. Now, we don't, but they did to their names, are um, really, really important to them. God bless you, Susan. We appreciate those questions today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We've still got time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Off to Wisconsin we go. John is in Wisconsin listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. John, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Brian. Thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, I'm wondering, we have a priest in our parish that when he says mass at the consecration he doesn't elevate the host in the chalice rather he intentionally looks out into the congregation and pushes the elements toward the people now my understanding of the sacrament 
the mass as a sacrifice Jesus offers for the people, but not to the people. So I don't know if there are any rubrics that would dictate how that's supposed to happen or am I being too picky? Well, you're not being too picky. I mean, the rubric should be right in the missalette. It says he elevates the host and he elevates the chalice for worship. Um, the elevation of the host and the chalice were things that was true were added in the Middle Ages, but they were meant for worshiping the um, consecrated, you know, host and 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 chalice, the uh, consecrated, the precious blood, and uh, to such an extent that um, uh, you know, in England, and they had funny ways of saying things in the Middle Ages. And the people all wanted to see the things so much that they go to the priest. They say, "Heave it higher, heave it higher," like this, so they could <laughs> so they could worship and see it. I don't know if you remember the old mass or the mass before Vatican II, but I was raised under that, and my father did the Irish custom, which was you know when you were um, at mass and the priest elevated the host. You, uh, you struck your breast and said, my Lord and my God. And when they elevated the consecrated precious blood, you said, my Jesus mercy, and struck your breast quietly, you know, to yourself. Now, those are very important things. Physical representation is extremely important. And uh, he really should correspond to the rubrics. And the rubrics of the Mass are clear in the Missal. It does say elevation. Now, how high you elevate it? Well... That's a, but its purpose is worship, worshiping the elements as God. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still a couple of lines open for you at 833-288-3986. John is in the great state of Virginia, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. John, how are things in the Commonwealth today? Doing good. Uh, Father, I wanted you to expand on what you said just a few minutes ago. Uh, with regard to the call about uh, Joan of Arc, um, if, a, if a Catholic cannot know if they're in a state of grace, then how would you know? How would you know that you could validly receive communion? I'm I'm confused about what you're saying here. Well, you're confused because you didn't listen carefully to what I said. I said you can't be with absolute ab- absolute mathematical certitude unless God reveals it to you. But since you asked, you have a relative certainty if you're not in, aware of having committed a sin and if you, um, you know, love God and things like that, that's how you can go to communion. But regarding absolute certainty, we never have, because it's God, it's, it's from God's point of view. Now, of course, he does reveal to some people they are in the state of grace so they could experience martyrdom or something like that. But lacking that, you know, I think if you think about it in the terms of the Protestants, are you saved? Yes. Period. No, we can't say that. If I am, may God keep me there. If not, may God put me there. That's the Catholic answer. So, but we can have a relative certainty, which is not the same as a mathematical certainty, that all things being equal... We're not aware of having committed a sin, and that's what allows us to go to communion. But that's why we have to approach the sacrament humbly. Yeah, and that's, the, and that's I think, generally the way that it's worded 
when uh, the requirements for receiving communion are laid out. There, it's not worded in such a way as to say you must be in a state of grace. It's always worded in such a way as to say you must not be aware of any mortal sin. Right. Does that help, John? Yeah, uh, so let me just say it back to you so I make sure I, I, I understand it. If, if I go to confession, and, and I truly am contrite, truly, sincerely contrite and confess my sins, I can walk away from that confession with, uh, with sincerely knowing that my sins have been forgiven. But right. to presume that I'm going to persevere in that grace uh, would be the sin of presumption. Is that what you're saying? No. What I'm saying is that since to be saved is something only God could know about us, with absolute certainty, we have a relative certainty, which is that as far as we know, we're in the state of grace, and we act accordingly regarding uh, communion and things like that. Uh, and we're not aware of being in the state of mortal sin or having committed a mortal sin. But you'll notice that's the reason why at the beginning of every Mass we say the confitier. And uh, we're always, uh, you know, uh, please, I think I'm worthy, but in case I'm not, uh, this is the idea. Um, Christians have lost very much the sense of humility in this regard. And I can tell you, not, I'm sure this isn't true of you, but you know, when I give communion, a lot of people, they act like it's, you know, just owed them. And they come up and they just slap out their hand and some, sometimes they don't even say amen. Or sometimes they'll say thank you to me, like I'm the one that gave it. No, it's Christ that you're receiving. And the hands are filthy. Uh, there's no preparation. They walk up there like uh, they're bored. Um, I, and I wanted, I sometimes have wanted to say to people, you know, if Elvis were alive and I told you Elvis were coming here today, none of you would act like this. <laughs> but because it's only Jesus, <laughs> who's the son of God made man, I mean, come on. You know, it's a gift we're receiving from God. None of us is totally worthy of it. Now, of course, I don't want to tell that to scrupulous people because they'll begin to think, oh, I'm never worthy uh, I never should go, and, and actually the Jansenist heresy uh, um, emphasized that in this country so much that I remember I knew a woman of a woman who had been at my novitiate. Uh, she was uh, one of the people in the parish, in a rural parish in Ohio, and she had gone to Mass every day of her life, but she'd only received communion twice. And uh, it was because of the Jansenist heresy. Now, we've encouraged frequent communion, because we know it's the medicine and the health and the food for the soul. But that doesn't mean that we should um, act like it isn't a gift that we receive humbly, of which we're totally worthy. Um, so, don't. what is it, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come unto me, but only say the word of my soul shall be healed. So... You need to walk quietly and walk humbly when it comes to receiving gifts from the Lord. God bless you, John. We appreciate the phone call today. Be sure to check out More to Life with Dr. Greg and Lisa Popchek tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Tomorrow they talk about conquering compassion. Is the feeling of inadequacy getting you down? Timely. Is someone else making you feel less than? 
We'll help you know your worth tomorrow on More to Life with Dr. Greg and Lisa Popcheck, 10 a.m. Eastern time right here on EWTN Radio. We could probably squeeze in another call or two. Give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Dan writes in, are there certain supernatural feats that are reserved for God alone? What does the church do to determine if a miracle is from God and not the devil? I have no idea what you're asking me, frankly. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I have no idea what you're asking me. I'm, the devil has some power over nature, and he could do spectacular feats, but I seriously doubt the devil could heal anyone. That's not his prerogative and he certainly can't forgive sins and all that business um, I'm, no I really don't quite understand what the weight of the question is I'm sorry um, you'd have to think of all the miracles that have ever been done and wondering if Satan could do you know what what he could do uh, what I can tell you is that the devil uh, can uh, well, you can see this in what the magi magicians in Egypt. Remember the snakes, Aaron's staff and their staff, mm -hmm, right? But remember, Aaron's staff swallowed theirs. The magicians of Egypt. So whatever hocus pocus or whatever the devil can do, uh, God's is always power, more powerful, and also more for the good, and not just a spectacular manifestation of power. Um. Alessandra writes in, is spiritual reading meant to help us grow intellectually in the faith or grant us graces? All right, well, that's not an either-or. It's a Catholic answer. <laughs> Solution is both and, and it's meant to do both. God gave us a brain to think with, and the more we understand the mysteries, the more it's possible for us to experience grace because of them. However, the purpose of spiritual reading as opposed to study isn't just to finish the book and answer questions about it. The purpose of it is to, when you're distracted, be able to refocus your attention on some mystery of the faith. And as soon as you do that, you put the book aside. I believe Teresa of Avila was one person who never went to meditation without a book mm -hmm. because she got easily distracted, apparently. And what she did was, when the book distraction came, she would look at the book and read some of it and when a pleasant truth of the faith or God you know, arose in her, then she just put the book aside. She wasn't interested in finishing reading the book. What she was interested in doing was placing herself in the presence of God. Yeah, pretty good. Next up is Robert in Bristol, Wisconsin, watching us today on Facebook Live, a first-time caller. Robert, welcome to the program. You're on with Father Brian. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I have actually two questions. The first question is... Uh, concerning uh, the passages in Mark 13. And the question is, uh, is Jesus talking about his second coming? Uh, unfortunately, I don't have all the chapters of the Bible memorized. Could you tell me what one you're specific you're referring to? Well, my question really is, uh, if uh, indeed the, uh, uh, the Son is consubstantial with the Father, why does he not know the date and time. Oh, okay. The date and knowing the date and time. All right, well, that's very simple to answer, and it actually is answered in the Catechism. 
because it's stated very clearly there that the Son really does know the day or hour, but he has not been sent to reveal it to us. And it says in other parts of Scripture, what Jesus says he doesn't know, what he's saying is that he isn't part of his revelation to us. But he certainly does know the day or hour. That particular section was used by Arius to maintain that Jesus was only a creature. So uh, he certainly, Christ certainly does know the day or hour, even his human intelligence. But there's obvious reasons which God did not will him to reveal that to us. Namely, we'd all wait till the end. That's our psychology. And just little, lead lascivious lives mostly until it was time. So uh, that, that's the solution to that. So in the, in the minute or two we have left here, Norman wants to know if morality is nature or nurture. Well, uh, gee, a minute or two, you really want an answer to that in a minute or two? <laughs> um, first of all, it's nature because it reflects the will and the intellect of what they're oriented to as well as the body. However, nurture does participate in it somewhat because the formation of your passions and things like that, uh, your formation of your temperament in a certain way, they do contribute to the manner in which you experience, especially the freedom of the will. So it does have some part to play. But obviously, a person who receives the best uh, formation in Catholicism possible as a child doesn't mean they're not going to fall away and betray Catholicism as an adult, as is witnessed by someone like Judas. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Dominican Father Brian Milady, our producer, Mr. Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. We'll do it again next week with Father Brian Milady. But you don't have to wait that long until we get another episode of EWTN's Open Line because Open Line Friday takes flight tomorrow at uh, 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan, will be in the house. Until we get together then, God bless. <laughs>